Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. We are in a series, our second part of the book of Acts, that we're calling Being the Missio Day. Now, that's not a play on our name. Missio Day means mission of God. And so what's happening in the book of Acts, in this second part of our series, is that we're looking as the believers are gathered together and more and more people are joining in their community that they they have to live this new identity out as the mission of God. The mission of God's being God's presence through the people and also the mission to spread this good news. They've got to figure out what does this mean, being the mission of God. And we see in these stories real people facing real challenges and working through the grittiness of that koinonia fellowship participation word that is their new identity as the people of God. And it gets gritty sometimes, but they're committed in koinonia fellowship with one another and also committed because they had seen the risen Christ. They had witnessed miracles. They had experienced the divine in the resurrection and ascension. They had seen it firsthand. And so they were willing to do the gritty work of koinonia fellowship. And that's what we're looking into. What does it look like being the Missio Dei? And it's really good for us to remember that that grittiness, in a lot of ways, even though their world, their context looked a lot different than ours, it still is relatable to our world today. So we're pressing in to really learn from them in our own life as the church now. So this week, we had in our reading plan to read Acts 16 through 19. We remember last week, Paul already completed his first missionary journey. And we showed a quick map of that to remember, this wasn't like running errands from between Chicago neighborhoods, right? These places he was traveling to with his companions, he was making some real distance covered. And in this section of scripture, we see uh, that he is on his second missionary journey. So we have a map of the territory covered for this. It's interesting to point out, you may have noticed this if you're reading along, suddenly in the middle of this text, we hear the language go from, it's in uh, verse 1610, we started out as they went, and now all of a sudden we went. It's us language, and this is a beautiful moment that isn't explicitly stated, but this is the moment that Luke, our author, joins this party, and the they becomes us because Luke is now with them traveling along. Just as a reminder, the author of this book, Luke, is a physician who travels with Paul and during that time is learning as they're walking this great distance, learning about the story of Jesus and and just this movement of God that's happening. And so he decides that he wants to go about taking an orderly account, both of Jesus's ministry, which we have in the Gospel of Luke, and in the movement of this early church movement, and that's the book of Acts. So in, um, in, in his gospel, Luke, one, to one, one through four, he explains his uh, incentive for undertaking this authorship task that he did, which we are so grateful for. He says this, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. So you hear his, his physician orderliness, right? 
we have some of these messages out there, but I want to like put it all together in a really organized fashion. And those are the books that we're leaning into now. And it's important for us to remember, I love this moment where the they becomes us because it reminds us that we're real people. Luke, Luke joined this group at this point. And we also see in this passage just the realness of Paul. And I just want to point this out in case it gets missed. Like, he's, he's a real guy, you guys. And he gets frustrated. He's going around as a passionate Jew, a person, a, a faithful person of God. And he wants the Jews to know this is the fulfillment, guys. This is what we're waiting for. And in, six, in 18, 6, he gets so frustrated at the synagogue where he keeps going to find the Jews and to teach them that he says literally to them, I'm going to the Gentiles. I like to put in the tone that actually would have been there, I think. Oh, enough of this. You guys aren't listening. I'm going to the Gentiles. I'm out of here. But in a couple verses later, he's back to the synagogues. And I love that. I love that realness, right? He wants the people of God to come and understand this message, even when he gets frustrated. So they arrive at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila, who, by the way, continue as teachers teaching the message. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. He went right back. I've been frustrated, but I'm not giving up on sharing this message. And so I love that. And I also love this, like that frustration, that's really real. And he expressed it. And I love that. But then listen, there's this passage in 18, 9 to 11, where Jesus reassures him and encourages him. And Jesus, in a vision, says this. Well, I'm sorry, this is the uh, narrator telling us the story. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching from the word of God. That's the other thing I want us to notice here. So as we head off now into the third missionary journey, which we have a map of that third journey as well, again, these are real people, real travel, real distances, real long walks, talking and learning together, but also real length. He was in that place for a year and a half. These aren't, this isn't happening at the speed with which we read these passages. It's hard to feel the, the grittiness of time when it's just written out in, in words. So we want to take the time to feel it. So again, Ephesus, he's in Ephesus, Acts 19, 8 to 10. Paul entered the synagogue again and spoke boldly there for three months, every day for three months. Well, probably, maybe not the Sabbath, I don't know. But anyway, all the time for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But then some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. The way is what we're calling this Jesus movement, now known as Christianity. But at the time, we're calling it the way of Jesus with a capital W. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And so that gets us up to the place where Jade was just reading from, which is then we lead up to this moment where there's a riot in Ephesus. And if we dig in here, I find this text fascinating. A couple weeks ago, we already had the conversation around idolatry. If you don't know about idolatry, worshiping false gods, I encourage you to go back and listen to that podcast or watch it on Facebook because we're not gonna press into the issue of idolatry, even though that's clearly being practiced here. But we're gonna press into it for another reason. So 
we, the really startling moment or the, the, the pivotal moment in this moment is in 1923, Acts 19.23. About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. This is what we're going to talk about. What, what does this look like when the way of Jesus disturbs a culture in which it is uh, interrupted into? But first, I want us to see um, not... Not just the people. This is where we're going to press in today. Okay, the riot has a lot of chaos going on, right? Jade even said it. Some of them doesn't even know why they were there. It was clearly chaotic. But what I want us to see and where we're going to press in this morning is the thing that's going on in the spiritual realm. The spiritual realm is what Luke is pointing out throughout this bit of scripture. So I want to back up a little bit and set up how it is that I'm seeing this as a highlighted, intensified activity that Luke points out in the spiritual realm. So this conversation already might rub against some of our modern sensibilities, and I just want to acknowledge that. We are, for those of us who are believers, we are people of the Spirit of God. There is a spiritual realm, and we know that because we engage with the Holy Spirit and believe that that is God's, this Holy Spirit is the way that God is present in our midst right now. When we're gathered in his name, in Jesus' name, the Holy Spirit is him here among us right now. There is a spiritual realm. And so we need to be, as Holy Spirit people, aware of that reality, because I think the world would love to, the enemy would love to numb us to it. Now, I know that this is a little strange, so I'm going to go to an interesting source to prove a point to you. This is non-theology, non-scholarship. We're going to Hollywood. And I'm going to tell you what I think the world wants us to believe, what the enemy himself wants us to believe about what's happening in the spiritual realm. Number one, highly recommended movie, The Emperor's New Groove. I recommend it to everybody. You know Kronk? You know that little image of the devil and the image of the angel? You know this? This is what the enemy is like. That's silly. It's a boogeyman. You know, you talk about the enemy, and it's, it's like that little voice on your shoulder with a pitchfork. That's what you're talking about. And so the world would maybe say to us, like, that's silly stuff. That's children's stuff. And this, by the way, is a great movie. I recommend it to everyone. The second one, so that's one way. Like, this is silly. There's a silly boogeyman talk. That's ridiculous. Okay, that would be one way. The other one, another great movie, but I do not recommend it to everybody because it's um, violent, and there are bad words in it. So this is not an everybody movie. So I can't say from the stage, go watch it, but I like it. Um, It's The Usual Suspects. Do you guys remember that movie? So in that movie, there is this uh, person, this character. First of all, there's a character who's narrating the whole thing. And we'll quote him, and he's in a discussion with a police officer trying to figure out what's going on, and there's this, like, epic bad guy named Kaiser Soze. I said that wrong, Kaiser Soze. And they keep talking about him because he's the one behind the curtain, so to speak, gathering these usual suspect bad guys who do crime things and getting them to do stuff. And everybody's scared to death of Kaiser Soze, but they've never seen him. No one knows who he is. And so at one point, the police officer asks our narrator, like, maybe he's just a myth. You know, he's like this legendary bad guy, but no one's seen him. Everyone's scared to death of him. What if he's just made up? And our narrator says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince the world that he does not exist. And I believe with all my heart that Hollywood nailed at that time. That is absolutely true, you guys. Do you know what a win it is for the enemy in the dark principalities of this world if we think that we're having silly boogeyman talk? 
This is real conversation. I've been praying spiritual protection over this space because the fact of the matter is we know there is power in the spiritual realm and that power includes darkness. And we have missed the mark if we write that off as the silly boogeyman. That's an enemy win and we will not have that as people of the Holy Spirit. So here's what I have to say about the truth of spiritual uh, realm, the truth of it, right? Ephesians 6, 10 to 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against the flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so when the day, not if, when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. And that's what people of the Holy Spirit are equipped to do because of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So there's my bit. Like, guys, the spiritual realm is real. So I just needed us to know that before we talk about what's going on here. Remember, this culture did not doubt the divine. We've been talking about that, right? They encountered the mysterious all the time. Their culture embraced uh, spiritual things. They understood there was divine mystery beyond their understanding. So they didn't fight against that maybe the same way that our culture is like questioning if that's a real thing. So in our culture here, they understand that. And so we need to go into the story with that understanding. And so at this moment in the book of Acts, this way of Jesus is causing great disturbance, including in the spiritual realm. The whole chapter is charged with spiritual energy. Let's go back. We start with this section in Acts 19, 11 to 13, which I will read out of the NIV version. What did I just say? 11 to 13. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some, uh, that, that's it for that part. Then we'll go to the next part. Okay, so we have these handkerchiefs, right? Well, that's weird. That, what is that about? Like, how are these healings and everything happening? This is not magic. It reminds us of the healings that uh, Luke already recorded in his gospel when, when um, people would even touch the fringe of Jesus' robe, right? There's a tactile nature. Or when earlier in the book of Acts, people would fall under Paul's shadow and healings would happen. But Luke is always demonstrating God's power, not some magic trick at the hands of the people who are having the healings happen. It's very important because Luke is clear about this. These moments, this one is not about Paul. It's always attributed to God through the Holy Spirit's pre presence in and through whichever human vessel is performing the healings. So also note this, there is no personal gain of the apostle or the person doing that. They're, they're, they're not getting uh, fame and they're not selling the things for financial gain, unlike other stories of people that we have read in the Bible who are trying to use this power for financial gain. And we see, we see that um, contention going on, but that's not happening here. Listen, Paul isn't even handing these things out. I think that's really interesting. He's not giving them to people. People are taking them. It also suggests like a, that gritty togetherness, right? They're kind of like picking up his discarded laundry, so to speak, and they're taking it with them. And this is happening in this, as this is happening in the spiritual realm, there are holy healings, it seems, with so much spirit-filled abundance. That's the message here, that people are picking up the scraps of the healing and still 
finding God's healing in them. So it's not about some magic in a garment. This is, this is attesting to the overabundance of the Holy Spirit's power. So Paul's fame manifested in people's eagerness to take his handkerchiefs and aprons in order to perform miracles also then leads some uh, exorcists to imitate him. So words getting out and they're like, hey, this Paul guy, something's going on. And there's some spiritual, real energy around what's going on here. And so this leads our next, um, our next event, which is some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who demon possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. And these are seven sons of a Jewish priest who are saying these words. Now, this is important here. The, the miracles that take place through Paul serve as an introduction, not to a new episode in life of Paul as some great healer, right? Luke's always clear about that. But rather to an episode that shows the failures of those who seek to imitate him to try to accomplish miracles attributing him to the apostle without knowing Jesus. Okay, that was like a weird mouthful, but what I'm trying to say is this. People see that something's going on with Paul. They are not trying to understand about the way. They're trying to grab at the miraculous. And so in grabbing at the miraculous without knowing Jesus Christ as Lord, we've got some weird things going on. So this unsuccessful casting out of a demon exorcism wasn't negative. Again, people understood that there was spiritual oppression. I actually think that we can lose a little bit of our awareness of that, um, but, but there really was such thing, and exorcisms took place. It was not, that wasn't weird in and of itself that this would be happening. But first of all, we've got seven guys who aren't the high priest. They're grabbing onto false authority to even engage in this way, and then they fraudulently call on the name of Jesus. Remember what Jesus himself taught. It was recorded in Matthew 7, starting in 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many of you will say to me on that day, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. That verse is hard for me sometimes. But I like to think, well, well but they were doing good things. But what Jesus is saying, like, if you don't know me, you're trying to use my name for some other purpose without actually having a life connected to me and the Holy Spirit, and it's not going to work. So they are chanting on this out, saying, by Jesus, who Paul proclaims. They're like distancing themselves a little bit. And in my opinion, they're trying to throw around the name of Jesus like some magical incantation right? They're, they're trying to use a name that they think has some special powers without knowing Jesus. They've just seen this work with these hankies getting thrown around, and they're like, hey, we'll do that too. And they're not taking the spiritual realm seriously. What ends up happening is that these demons speak back and say, hey, we know Jesus, and we've heard of Paul, but who are you? And they beat him, them, excuse me, these men, and they like, have to run away naked, embarrassed, and beat by the powers of darkness because they misused the name of Jesus and they didn't know. This is not some magic cloth. It's not a magic incantation in the name of Jesus. This is a relationship. It's a relationship with Jesus that gives us the ability to have the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you're not taking that seriously in the spiritual realm, stuff gets freaky and not so okay, right? So we see these spiritually heightened stories happening, and this news is spreading. 
And the, we see the humiliation and the defeat of these the men as they run defeated away, de, defeated by powers of darkness. And there creates in all of these happenings, and people are all around watching these things happen, a, a sense of awe. So in Acts 19, nope, nope, wrong one. 17 to 20, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery. This is heightened spiritual stuff going on in, this, uh, in the spiritual realm. They brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Okay, so why is this little moment important? Number one, people experienced a, a heightened moment even where darkness won, right? Those demons beat those men. They experienced something really holy and mysterious and the spiritual realm is elevated and they say willingly, I'm turning from my sorcery. I don't, this is not, this is scary stuff. And I want us to acknowledge, like, first of all, they, number one, they're witness of what happened. They willingly laid it aside. There's no one preaching, hey, you shouldn't practice sorcery anymore. It's not recorded here. These are people seeing something intense in the spiritual realm and being like, this is nothing to mess around with. And they lay down their books. And the value here, you guys, is important. It's not a mere aside. Burn for a ton of money. They didn't throw them away or give them into recycling bin where someone else could participate in them. This stuff's got to get gone. There's no other way around it. It's practicing. It's engaging with the powers in the spiritual realm that are so much more powerful than we have control over. But we see that power is in the name of Jesus, right? So they lay this down and they burn it. Why so much value? Because they were making money in the business of sorcery. There's money to be made in the spiritual realm, you guys, and that's not okay. It's not okay to be in places where we're putting money towards people who are engaging with the spiritual realm. We can't perpetuate that. It's scary stuff, you guys. I just really want to implore you. Like, never touch a Ouija board, and I'm not even kidding. Don't do it. Don't do it. And I say that from personal experience. It's not okay. I learned that the hard way. Don't do it. The spiritual realm is very real. Okay, I got on a soapbox for a minute there. But it's really serious stuff. And the people who were practicing sorcery realized, man, we are, we're messing with some dark stuff. And we can't even let someone else get our hand, their hands on these books. We need to willingly say, this is, this is not okay to engage in this. But the, also the link to the financial market, so to speak, of practicing sorcery I think sets us up really interestingly for the place where we're going in the riot in Ephesus. Because those people were, were gaining, those are financial gain and sorcery. Well, here we see the financial gain in this temple of Artemis life. So let me explain that a little bit. We get to this point, this way, the way of Jesus, is a threat to our way of life. That passage Jade read. So we know that there was trouble in Ephesus from Paul's other letters. We don't know all the details, but we know a bit. And one of the things we know is that there was a serious temple worship culture going on in that town to the temple of Artemis. The temple of Artemis was one of the historic ancient world's wonders of the world. This is a, obviously not a real photo. This is a reenactment of the temple, but it was ginormous and gloriously lovely and a big deal. Artemis protected the city in their beliefs 
So in this moment, we see very deeply religion and state are absolutely one. So part of Artemis's job was to protect this city. It also was the financial banking center of the area. It was literally like the FDIC. That's where you kept your money. And so all of this, it's this banking center in Asia, all of this is wrapped up. So this, this business this man was in from Jade's reading, uh, he's making little mini temples for the tourists. Because of course, this is like a major tourist attraction, right? And you get your little, you get your little statue when you go. And so it's not just about idolatry, right? Right now we see nationalism threatened. We see commerce threatened. Their livelihoods are at stake because the way is saying, cut it out with false gods. And they're like, this is not a good message for business. This is not gonna go well in this city. Think of the tourist income that is at hand here. Also, the Empress Agrippa was linked to this temple. So we therefore also see this whole conversation around temple and Artemis is also linked with emperor in politics, right? So Artemis clearly has reached into religious, civil, civic, political, and economic life. It's all interwoven. And so we see that in this chaos. That's the way we can see how many people, how big the freakout is in this mass riot. The uh, estimations of the theater that they're saying that they went to held 25,000 people. This wasn't a little crowd who was a bit worked up. This was a huge crowd because all of that civic, religious, political, everything all together. So uh, Demetrius, this person who starts out, he starts talking about the economic implications of the way. Like this is gonna hurt our business. But then uh, his, his motivations uh, seem to shift because he starts talking about um, we can't have this because it's not honoring to Artemis. So what we see here is a tie in one sentence. Like, wait, this is bad for business and not honoring Artemis altogether. So we see these things. I don't think he's being disingenuous, like, oops, I need to shroud my economic concern in religious ease. I don't think that. I mean, it's really linked all together in his mind and world. So we think that this, we see this, of course, all the time in church history, right? Conflating religious and political realms. The two motivations are confused in what begins as a business decision ends as a religious riot, and it's chaos. Now, for us, again, we think these things are separate. Here's my work, here's my church, here's my government. My boss can't prohibit my faith, my pastor should not tell me who to vote for, and my mayor cannot say that I can't pray in that public park. These things are separate, not so here. These three are culturally woven together. The emperor of Rome can say that he is Lord, fully declare his own divinity. Our finances in this culture are kept in the temple. That's where our money is safe. Our economy is dependent on our deity. Do you see what I'm saying? Like all these things, there's no, there's no separation. And so we have to enter into that in our mind, this kind of tied togetherness. And so we understand a little more this chaotic and confusing scene. Paul's travel companions, they're dragged along into uh, the, the area where everybody's meeting. Um, but believers and official in the Providence who are friends with Paul stop Paul from even going. Paul's a pretty powerful teacher and speaker. And he's got this powerful Holy Spirit miracle stuff going on. But even they knew this won't be safe for Paul. Do not let him go into that riotous mess. And Paul didn't even go in. 
Everything was in confusion. In fact, most of them didn't even know why they were there, but they knew it was the place to be. There was an uproar going on. So the Jews pushed Alexander, who's a Jew, forward in the haste, and the crowd points to him and somehow aimed at this one guy. We don't really know why. Maybe because they know he's a Jew and therefore believes in one God. Maybe. But anyway, in response towards Alexander, the crowd cries, great is Artemis for two hours. I went to a Cubs game recently. I don't really care about baseball, but I, I like being in Wrigley Field. We set Go Cubs Go for 30 seconds, and I was bored out of my mind. I was like, I'm done with that chant. So you can imagine how much somebody had to care to keep that chant going seriously for two hours. There, you hear in this like a frenzy, a passion, a chaos. This is like religious fever going on here. And then a clerk speaks up. Now, a clerk is an intermediary between Roman government and the assembly of citizens there. The clerk speaks up saying, hey, if you've got a problem and they broke the law, go to court, handle it, and you have a place to go, but you need to stop rioting for our own protection. We're in danger of getting in trouble with Rome. And there, they've just like laid down the trump card, even over all the other things they're saying. Do you guys play Euchre? And this is it. This is the bower. None of the other things you're worried about now matter. They evoke the name of the empire. I find that interesting. It reminds me of how they were trying to evoke the name of Jesus as some like incantation that had power in and of itself. Look at the power of evoking the name of Rome. That's no small thing. They all stop rioting and they go home for fear of Rome. The empire has power even over Artemis. So when we look at this original question of the way of Jesus versus Artemis, we see here that even Rome has influence beyond what we can imagine. There's always a bigger fish, right? And it has more interest and power over all the other things they're saying. Why am I focusing on this weird passage today? Paul doesn't preach. No one speaks the good news. No one comes to know Christ as Lord. No one. There is no koinonia fellowship win apparent in this moment. And the reason we're going here is because I think there's something incredibly important for us to remember as people of faith. The church needs to know the world in which we operate as Holy Spirit people. And we need to see the spiritual forces at work in our physical surroundings. This is one of those moments where we just have to keep our eyes open. The way of Jesus is gaining momentum. And as one of my friends would say, that makes the enemy freak out. That's her, her term for it. I know when the enemy's freaking out because there's some movement in the way of Jesus happening. So we see this, this like boiling pot kind of thing coming to a head because there is intensity in the spiritual realm. The principalities of darkness, the enemy of God, right? They are operating all around us. Ephesians 6.12, our struggle isn't against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, powers in this dark world, and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I'm repeating that because it's like just a fact. So again, principalities of darkness are operating all around us, including in systems such as politics and economics. That same thing, we need to see that that same thing can be true here. We often like to think um, of all those categories as being separate, right? Church, state, uh, work, all of that, economy, whatever. We think of those, but also our culture is more prone to separate the physical and the spiritual. And that's a false dichotomy. Christians know 
that we are both physical and spiritual beings, that uh, uh, the, fear, the physical and spiritual both matter. God cares about both. God enters into both. Really quickly, Jesus, fully human, fully divine, entered into our humanity, and by the way, resurrected in bodily resurrection. That's a big deal that the Son of God didn't resurrect into a spiritual being. Resurrected into an embodied physical being. That's really important. A couple weeks ago, remember when the angel came and busted Paul out of jail and did this miraculous moment and said, don't forget your coat and shoes. Like the angel of God cared that he was going to have his physical needs met as they busted out of prison. And Jesus, of course, when Jesus did healings, he didn't stop at the physical. He healed and forgave for sins at the same time. He brought emotional all that healing at once because Jesus cared about the whole package, physical and spiritual. The, uh, and I just feel like it's really important for us to remember that. But verse 23 says, all of a sudden we see a disruption about this alternate way of Jesus. And I say, yes, please. Yes, please in these systems, let there be a disruption because the enemy currently has infiltrated those systems, the enemy currently still is operating in and through the physical systems of our world. That's a fact that we need to be aware of. The enemy would love us to think, well, that's, that's just commerce, that's government, that's different, that's not a spiritual space. And that's just false, you guys. The physical world is the location of the spiritual battle happening still today in our physical world, and that matters. So again, think about those, how everything is kind of intertwined, right? Here's the imagery that I was finding myself thinking about this week. We have a little garden, uh, it's not so little, that we have not tended this year, but whatever. Andy and I have a little cabin, we get away to a couple hours out of the city, and we have a garden there, really sandy soil. So we tore up all of this area, and we just, it was all like weeds and stuff, and we decided to make this patch into a garden. And on one side, we put in blueberry bushes, and we have some veggies over here, and we put in some apple trees that are having failure to thrive, but that's because I'm neglecting them, et cetera. Anyway, picture my little garden, right? Our garden. Sorry, honey. And we were gardening in there when we were first getting stuff out, and I got this weed, and I kind of yanked it. And this thing just dragged on and on, all under the surface. Till one point, the root of this weed was like an inch around. It was so huge. Like, what is this beast? So I would drag it as far as I could, and then sometimes I'd run into something. Like, for example, I'd get over towards our little, um, our little green beans. They shoot up real fast. They don't have a deep root structure. And like, if I were to yank that whole root out, it was all intertwined with our little tiny green bean uh, roots, and it would tear the whole garden apart. So sometimes I just had to lob it off where I could, and then I wouldn't see it again for a while, and we'd see some other little manifestation above the surface, and I'd pull at it, and right again, we'd be in this huge intertwined mess of weeds below the surface. Okay, so now go back to our whole, here's how all this stuff is intertwined, right? I need one more hand right now, so pretend this one stays still. Now get the enemy in there, right? Infiltrating like that weed below the surface but you can't see it because it's in the spiritual realm. And so you only see these nasty little manifestations in moments of things that you know are not okay, but you don't know how to tackle them because you can't see them and all you see is uh, economics and politics and education reform and all of this, all like that, it's all interwoven. And the enemy wants us not to see that he's gotten his roots all down into these physical systems. The spiritual and the physical cannot be separated. And sometimes, unfortunately, 
Even religious systems are tied into that too, including the church history. We have to be honest about this. We've talked about this uh, in why it is that we do corporate confessions. Sometimes it's not even us corporately like together confessing our individual stuff. It's not about that. It's sometimes saying we, the church, need to confess where we have whiffed. Oh my gosh, we need to lament these things. And I'm speaking now, sometimes I need that from my own descent, right? I'm, I'm of European descent. And I can see it in the stories of colonizing. So this is one example I'm going to give you where all this is tied up and then the enemy's roots got into all of it. So Justo Gonzalez was teaching me this piece of uh, Latin American history I did not know. But it's a good sample of what I'm talking about. In Brazil, where Manuel de Nobriga wrote to the king of Portugal, and he's talking about the Indians, which we know were the uh, native inhabitants of that land, but he refers to them because they thought they were in the Indies, right, in, in India. So if the Indians were to have a spiritual life, to know their creator and their subjection to your majesty and their obligation to obey Christian Portuguese men, we would have legitimate slaves captured in just wars. Do you hear how this language is like, what? What? First of all, just wars. I'm going to have to pause on that one. But did you see how we conflated so easily this subjugation to the majesty along with uh, knowing your creator? Won't they be so free as we subjugate these people to your majesty? This language is so like this, right? And he says this, the land would be full of colonizers. Our Lord would gain many souls and your majesty would receive great income from this land. All this talk. It's, it's all tied together. And suddenly we have the language of uh, souls being one along in the same sentence as slavery and subjugation, taking of another com uh, community's resources uh, linked in with faith. Man, this stuff gets messy. And you can see, that's what I just need us to be aware of. We need to be aware to see all this stuff is not black and white and separate. And the enemy in the spiritual realm can get these roots growing down and messing everything up. And we have to be really alert people in order to see that and, and help to come against that because we know there's a different and better way. Where these things tangle, the enemy has a lot of places to get in little roots of evil to infiltrate. And we want to be sober-minded in the reminder of the way of Jesus and the truth, what we are up against now, like we've been up against in the past. Consider the spiritual battleground in our own systems today. Eusta Gonzalez again says this, when we look at it this way, then the conflict in the new, that the New Testament describes in terms of demons is not all that different from what we today mean when we speak about injustice and oppression. You think about this, you guys, that little, that little shoulder devil with the pitchfork, like, no, 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 no. We have to be so much more aware than that, right? Commitment to Jesus is not only a matter of confession of faith, it is also a matter of joining him and facing the powers of evil. How else could otherwise benign systems create such evil in our midst, you guys? The beauty of difference producing racism? You're telling me the enemy doesn't have this grip in these systems? What, what about when uh, tools, like a tool, like economic systems, create pockets of extreme poverty? You're to tell me the enemy doesn't have his build, roots in those places? Again, when community bonds can be lovely, become segregation, we could go on and on. These are not by chance. 
First Peter 5, 8 says, be alert and sober-minded. sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And here's what I just want us to point out. First, the spiritual battle does take place in the physical realm. We have to acknowledge that. Second, that statement, looking for someone to devour, this statement is not just about individual threats of succumbing to sin or something like that. It is including the engagement in the systems because we are engaged with the systems. So it matters because the individuals that the enemy is going around trying to prowl after are living in real systems that can be redeemed. We need to see the influence of darkness in the systems around us, and we can't just say, well, that's the way it is. That's kind of like saying, it's just a boogeyman. You know, it's just not true. It's not true. We know a different way that it's supposed to be. We know the story of what the garden is supposed to be like. We know the story of intended shalom and justice and flourishing. And so my call for us this morning is to be spiritually alert people, people of the Holy Spirit, who remember and practice the truth that the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in this world, 1 John 4, 4. People of the Holy Spirit engage in the broken places as agents of God's mercy and love. So when we say in little pockets, the head of that weed pop up, we don't whack away at it just at the surface or clip it, you know, just get in there and try to yank that out. Sam and I have had the opportunity to meet with several of our partners, both a global partner and a um, local partner of ministries doing great works. And both of them were talking about, like, we can no longer just, just go for the immediate. Yes, feed the hungry. Like, they need to have food. The a person who is hungry, meet that immediate need. But both of these organizations are going like, we can't stop until we get to the root, until we go on deeper than that, because we are Holy Spirit people who know the one who is in us is greater than the one who's in this world. And we acknowledge when we're seeing a spiritual battle ahead of us. And that's why we want to be people here who engage in uh, prayer, because this is a spiritual battle, and action, because we are people empowered by the Holy Spirit to engage. This week, Merck and Chloe sent a song to me that we're about to sing. And you guys, I can't get it out of my head. I keep thinking about it. I want you to really listen to the lyrics, especially this part. I just kept on having it go through my mind was thinking about that garden, the garden with the weed and the garden that we know where God longs to walk with us in the cool of that garden. And God will restore that, by the way, you guys, just a reminder all of that will be made new again. But as we're here, these lyrics say, every weapon made for war, every gun and sword will be melted in the flame to be used for gardening. And that's what we're talking about today, you guys. We're talking about engaging as gardeners in this world where we are, in the physical, as spiritual people who know that our actions, our words, and our engagement matters. So my first call for us today is that we would be alert be sober-minded, be aware of what it means to be people in the physical realm who are engaged in a spiritual battle where the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in this world. And so lastly, I leave you with this verse and then I'm gonna pray and we're gonna move to a time of response. In John uh, chapter one, verse five, John reminds us the light, Jesus. He's describing Jesus as the light. Light has come and darkness cannot overcome it. When you're faced with a spot that is especially dark and the light who is in you, who is in us, will overcome. If you ever have a moment where light and dark intersect, the light overcomes. Let us be people of light in the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. 
Jesus, we just say yes to um, acknowledging you as Lord. May we never fall to um, lies of magic tricks or whatever other fancy things we think we're doing when it's really, Lord, it's all about relationship with you that gives us the ability to engage as Holy Spirit people in the spiritual realm. The battle matters. There are, there are lives and souls at stake. Help us to see, even in little moments, how we can just be alert. Maybe that's my prayer for us today. Holy Spirit, just help any scales of blindness uh, to the things that are in front of us. Leave our eyes. Let us see what's really going on in the heavenly realm. Oh, shoot, I don't remember where it is in Scripture, God, but you know where it is, where um, Elijah asks that his eyes could be opened to see, and the, the, the chariots in the, in the spiritual realm were there about to take on the battle. Give us eyes to see what's going on around us. Holy Spirit, we trust in you. We love you, and we long to be partakers and participants in the renewal that you are longing to bring to our city. May it be so. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.